Section six of the Golden Web by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book one, chapter six. An imperious demand. There was a little murmur of interest. On the whole, although the result of the trial had seemed fairly certain, everyone was surprised. Guilty of murder or manslaughter? Major Elstree asked. Of murder, answered Dean. There was not even a recommendation to mercy. Lady Olive looked reproachfully at him. My dear Sterling, you really shouldn't have told us at lunchtime. If I hadn't been so very hungry, I'm sure it would have taken my appetite away. He was such a good-looking fellow, and he has been so brave all through the trial. Brave or callous, do you think? Major Elstree asked. Brave, I think, Julia Raham declared, leaning forward in her place. I went to the trial the first day. He followed every question that was asked, and he was always making suggestions to his solicitor. I think when one understands like that, when one's intellect is working all the time, that you cannot call it callousness. I agree with you, Lady Olive declared. I was there myself, and except that he looked so ill, he seemed quite indifferent and absolutely free from nervousness. Yet I am quite sure that he realized his position. My dear Sterling, how thoughtful of you to remember. The Hamard American. I adore hot lobster, don't you, Julia? Delicious, Julia murmured. I wonder, Major Elstree said reflectively, what must be the state of mind of a man who has gone through a trial lasting four or five days and suddenly realizes that it is over and finished, and that he has lost. This poor fellow, for instance, when he woke up this morning, he perhaps hoped to be free tonight. Things went altogether his way yesterday, and instead of being free, he has been taken back to his cell and knows, even at this minute, he is realizing that he will never leave it again until he leaves it to die. Personally, he continued, I think that the period of time between pronouncement of a sentence and its execution ought to be swept away. I cannot imagine anything more horrible, especially to a man who has to spend the long nights alone with that one thought racking his brain. Lady Olive laid down her fork. My dear Harry, she declared, do be a little bit more considerate. How are we to enjoy our luncheon if we think of that poor man? Major Elstree bowed across the table. I forgot, he said. Let us enjoy our luncheon by all means. At the same time, I am going to drink my first glass of wine to a reprieve. We won't discuss the question of whether he deserves it or not. We will talk instead, if you like, of directory gowns and flying stars chance for the gold cup. But I drink my toast. You are very quiet, Sterling, Lady Olive murmured to the man who sat by her side. Dean smiled at her. I'm afraid that sometimes when I come away from a maze of figures, my brain, or at any rate my tongue, is not so nimble as it should be. I'll keep pace with you all presently. A frock-coated, white-waistcoated, Metro de Hotel, came smiling up and addressed him confidentially. Mr. Dean, he said, you are wanted for a moment upon the telephone. You are sure that is I who am wanted? Dean asked, a little doubtfully. Quite sure, sir, the man replied. The inquiry was for Mr. Sterling Dean. Dean rose to his feet. You'll excuse me, he begged, turning to his guests. 
I suppose they have found out at the office that I am here, and they have probably something to say to me. Nevertheless, as he left the room and crossed the hall, Dean was conscious of feeling more than a little puzzled. He was quite certain that he had not told a soul at the office of the Incorporated Gold Mines Association, over which he presided, that he was lunching at the Carlton. He was equally certain that he had not told anyone else. He took up the receiver of the instrument with some curiosity. "'Who is it?' he asked. "'Who are you?' was the reply. "'I am Sterling Dean,' Dean said. "'Who are you? And what do you want with me? Is it the office?' No, was the reply, in a voice wholly unfamiliar to him. It is not the office, Mr. Dean. It is someone with news for you. News, Dean repeated. I should like to know who you are first, and to hear your news afterwards. Who I am is of no consequence, was the reply. My news is that Basil Rowan has been found guilty, and has been sentenced to be hanged. The verdict has just been pronounced." The receiver nearly fell from Dean's fingers. He restrained himself, however, with an effort. Well, he said, what is that to you or to me? That is a matter which we will not discuss over the telephone, was the calm reply. I rang you up to tell you this because I thought it was well that you should know quickly. I ask you now, what are you going to do? Dean's was the face of a strong man, a man who scarcely knew the meaning of the word nerves yet he felt himself struggling with a sudden sense of being stifled. Something seemed to be hammering at his brain. His breath was coming in little sobs. He answered this mysterious voice almost incoherently. "'What do you mean? How can it concern me? Tell me who you are at once,' he said. "'It does not matter who I am,' was the reply. "'You have no time to think about that. What you want to realize is that Basil Rowan has been found guilty and that he will be hanged within a fortnight, unless... Unless what? Dean gasped. Unless someone intervenes, was the quiet answer. Who could intervene? He demanded hoarsely. How can anyone intervene? You know, was the quiet answer. Dean staggered out of the telephone box with those last words ringing in his ears. He felt dazed, scarcely master of himself. The healthy color seemed to have been drawn from his cheeks, as he turned mechanically back toward the restaurant. Halfway there, however, he paused. For the moment, he felt it impossible to face his guests. He turned into the little smoking room and sat down. The place was empty. Even the little bar was deserted. He sat in one of the green leather chairs, his hands clutching the cushioned arms. His eyes fixed steadily upon the wall. Slowly it seemed to fall away, to crumble into nothingness before his rigid gaze. Again he saw the somber-looking courthouse, the judge upon the bench, his sphinx-like face set in an attitude of cold attention. He saw the barristers with their wigs and gowns, the few distinguished strangers upon the bench, the crowd of sightseers behind the barriers, and in the center of it all, Basil Rowan, his pale face and drawn features, standing out vividly, against the gloomy background. It was no ordinary trial, this. The subtle, dramatic excitement, with only a question of life or death seemed to generate, was throbbing through the dreary court. It was only, comparatively speaking, a few days ago that the man who stood there now waiting to hear his doom 
had found his way down into the city and sat in his office and made his passionate appeal dean's hands gripped the sides of the chair and his lips moved he told himself as he had told himself a hundred times before that this act was none of his doing that not a single word of his had suggested or approved of it he had spoken of arguments of influence was it any responsibility of his that the man who had listened had gone further had chosen to gamble instead with life and death dean went back through that conversation word by word no he was guiltless he had not suggested violence he even told himself that he would not have approved of it and yet the weight upon his heart was not lightened the little picture was still there reproduced with almost photographic exactness was it his fancy or had the trembling man's eyes really turned towards him had his white lips really framed that passionate unspoken appeal which seemed to ring in his ears dean rose to his feet with a little stifled cry he seemed to understand now how men who are left alone with their thoughts might find madness. End of section 6